Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday, and welcome to the Reading with Courier Journal for this Wednesday, November 15th, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. And as you know, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Rod Brotherton. All right, we've reached the middle of November. Is it ever going to turn cold? Well, not for a couple of days because today's high is 71, sunny and warm. Tonight, low 42, clear, not cold. Thursday, high 70, low 54, more sun than clouds. Get out there and enjoy these next two days because Friday rain is likely with a high of only 60 and low of 35. Saturday, high 53, low 35, but sunny and cool. Sunday, also sunny. Sunday is also sunny of a high of 52, but a low of 33. And Monday, a mix of clouds and sun with a high of 51 and a low of 35. Looking at the almanac, yesterday's high and low, 71 and 37, with a normal of 59 and 40. The record high was 80 in 1955, and the record low, 16 in 2019. Precipitation on Monday, nothing. Month to date, just a trace, with the normal being 1.39 inches. Year to date, we've had 37.91, but normal is 42.18. For the sun and the moon, the sun rose this morning, 724. It will set at 531 this afternoon. The moon will come up at 1 minute before 10 this morning and set at 7.04 this evening. And for our weather history, a devastating tornado cut an 18-and-a-half-mile-long path through Huntsville, Alabama on November 15, 1989. 21 people died and 463 were injured, and over 500 buildings were damaged at a cost of more than $100 million. All right, let's look at the headlines. And the first story, big checks coming for some UAW members. But who gets that is complicated with the deals by the big three automakers. Pumped-up paychecks and a $5,000 pre-tax bonus would hit checking accounts of UAW members at the Detroit Three shortly after union members approved the tentative agreements in the next few weeks. The four-figure lump-sum ratification bonus will be paid out within two weeks of the union membership ratifying the agreement, according to the United Auto Workers highlights published online for Ford Motor Company and hourly employees of General Motors. Stellanus notes that ratification bonus payments will be made in the second pay period following written notification of contract ratification. Represented hourly employees at Stellanus are paid weekly. Represented salary employees are paid every other week. Both groups will receive the ratification bonus. Voting is ongoing at the UAW locals with members at the Detroit Three and those on strike agreed to return to work after the tentative contracts were reached in late October. For many, the money could feel like a windfall. Some will receive even more cash up front. The UAW tentative agreements at GM, Ford, and Stellantis and each include another healthy chunk of cash, a supplemental ratification bonus fund to offer extra money to mitigate the financial impact on employees who walked out on strike 
were laid off at various points in time as a result of the UAW's historic stand-up strike that began in phases on September 15th. The UAW strike plan in 2023 involved a most unusual strategy for targeting only three key plants at all three Detroit makers, initially on September 15th, and then unexpectedly escalating strike activity at different operations as the weeks of the labor battle progressed. All three of the Detroit companies agreed to this special bonus that applies on a pro rata basis for each day of work lost. It applies if the workers did not receive a supplemental employment, unemployment benefit from the company. Some UAW members could be looking at a few extra thousand dollars. In addition, UAW members will receive a record 11% wage increase upon ratification of the tentative agreement. And temporary workers at the low end of the pay scale will see even more substantial wage gains. Overall, the proposed contract calls for a 25% wage increase across the life of the more than four and one-half year deal, which would expire in 2028. Given the lengthy ratification process, the extra upfront cash could arrive just in time to splurge on holiday shopping or cover some of those bills. That's if the agreements are approved as the UAW leadership has recommended. It's going to drive consumer spending in Michigan in the near term and support the local economy here, said Bill Adams, chief economist for Comerica Bank. A ratification bonus, much like profit-sharing checks that also are part of the deal next year, can easily be viewed as free money that people may be more willing to spend rather than save. But that money wasn't free at all if you worked or went on strike to get it. As part of the 2023 tentative agreement, temporary workers will benefit from the profit-sharing plans at the Detroit 3 starting with the 2024 payout. It's the first time that temporary workers will be eligible for profit sharing. Anytime you're looking at a large lump sum, you might spend a few extra dollars on some frivolous, fun purchases, but a bulk of that money can be targeted toward getting rid of some of the financial headaches. If you received a raise or bonus payment, it's easy to increase your overall standard of living, but that's not always the best approach said Catherine Elowitz at Greenpath Financial Wellness, a nonprofit credit counseling agency. Realistically, she said, most consumers are better off being more aggressive about paying down their debt on the high-cost credit cards and student loans when they receive a sizable lump sum. The average interest rate on credit cards is a staggering 20.72% according to Bankrate.com's data. That's up from an average of only 16.34 in late February 2022 before the Federal Reserve kicked off a robust round of rate hikes. As paychecks grow, auto workers might even try to allocate a little extra money to cover big expenses ahead, maybe saving more toward a down payment to replace an old car one day, putting more aside to help children pay for college, or even saving more toward retirement. While it's not necessarily fun, Putting those additional funds toward debts and savings can significantly improve your financial picture, Elliot said. The financial game plan will be different for those who went on strike and those who didn't. The highly unusual UAW strike strategy in 2023 
meant that a large number of union members actually stayed on the job and kept working. Others hit the picket lines. More than 48,000 UAW members went on strike at some point since the contract expired at 11.59 on September 14th, and they were forced to live on substantially less money while on strike. Some were on strike as long as 41 days. Others were on strike much less than that. The UAW represents more than 145,000 auto workers at the Detroit Three. As of October 30th, GM had about 17,400 UAW workers, including 3,200 hourly workers at its Spring Hill, Tennessee plant who went out on strike. The ripple effect associated with strikes at GM facilities was estimated to have spread to 2,500 other workers who were laid off at GM as of October 25th, according to GM's tally of the strike's impact. Ford had 16,600 workers on strike at three plants and 3,167 workers laid off at 10 Ford sites, according to a Ford news release dated October 24th. Targeted UAW strikes against Ford began on September 15th in Michigan, September 29th in Illinois, and October 11th in Kentucky. Stellantis had about 14,300 employees on strike and 2,045 laid-off temporaries due to the strike, according to the company, which builds several well-known brands such as Jeep, Ram, and Dodge. For those who lost work when the UAW took their factory or facility on strike, an extra bonus can apply to laid-off workers and those who went on strike. GM agreed to make $58 million overall available as part of what's being called the Supplemental Ratification Bonus Fund, according to the UAW Strike Settlement Online. Ford agreed to make $53 million available for this unusual fund. Stellantis agreed to make $48 million available for the Supplemental Ratification Bonus for those covered. To reach the pro-rata figure, total amount at each company will be divided by the number, total number of workdays lost by all affected employees. Payments from the Supplemental Ratification Bonus Fund will be made in the form of a supplement to the base ratification bonus paid to all eligible employees following the ratification, according to UAW Settlement Language Online. UAW workers who lost work or went on strike, of course, faced a financial crunch when it came to paying their rent or mortgage and covering other big bills. Seeing $500 in strike pay fell far short of a typical paycheck. Catching up on bills and expenses that built up while stri on strike will be essential, including paying down any high-cost credit card debt that was taken on during the strike. Some may need to pay back strike loans of $4,000 or so that were designed to get them through the rough patches. If a loan doesn't have a prepayment penalty, Some might want to pay it off early to avoid paying extra interest. If they tapped into emergency savings to cover the gaps after receiving $500 a week in strike pay, they'll want to rebuild their savings too. And don't forget preparing for a bigger tax bill. If you're one of the auto workers on strike, take into account that strike pay will be counted as taxable income on your future tax bill. Strike pay is taxable both on a federal income tax returns as well as state income tax returns in Michigan. Taxes weren't withheld from the $500 a week strike checks, creating what could be a larger than expected tax bill for some. 
At $500 a week, for example, you're looking at $3,000 in taxable income after six weeks on strike. The biggest financial impact of those contracts is going to be felt by the lowest paid workers, not necessarily those who had been at automakers for several years. The UAW noted that some Stellantis employees hired in 2023 at $15.78 an hour will earn more than $40 an hour in base wages by the end of the agreement. Some Stellantis hourly UAW workers, currently making $18.04 an hour, will see their pay go up to $24.68 an hour at ratification in 2023, and that's nearly a 37% gain. Immediately upon ratification, for example, some Ford hourly workers who have lived three years, who have three years seniority, will see their pay jump by as much as $11.18 an hour, or by more than $23,000 over a year, according to a chart in the Ford Highlighter published online by the UAW. Their pay will go up to $35.58 an hour, up from $24.40 an hour currently. Ken Rouse, a UAW member who has worked for 10 years at Stellantis, said he's making $31.77 an hour now, and that would go up to more than $35 an hour upon the contract's ratification, a raise of about 11%. But Rouse, 44, who is married and has two children still at home, ages 11 and 17, said the financial gains in the tentative agreement for many UAW members with several years on the job at the Detroit 3 only help cover some of the pressures from high prices that families are already facing. He's glad that the agreement will bring back cost-of-living adjustments after the high inflation of the last few years. Even so, Rouse has said has reservations about the tentative agreement, particularly relating to the revisions and the language. He has concerns about the future of Trenton Engine, as well as how time off would be handled under the Family and Medical Leave Act. Rouse said early in November that he planned to vote no, but he thought some newer workers would vote in favor of the contract since they could see higher wages, wages fairly quickly. And he's not overly impressed with $5,000 pre-tax ratification bonus. Bo- Rouse remembers the $9,000 ratification bonus given as part of the 2019 UAW contract with the Detroit 3. And this year's contract of $5,000 bonus falls far short for him. In 2019, though, the bonus was only $3,500 for temporary workers. This $5,000 sign-in bonus is low and they can do better with that, said Rouse, a UAW member who had worked at Trenton Engine Complex and now drives a forklift, delivering material to the line at the Stellantis Mack Assembly Plant in Detroit. His plant wasn't on strike as part of the non-traditional stand-up strike strategy. But the time taxes are taken out of the bonus, he said, and it's likely to be around $3,400 or so. To me, it's not really extra he said. And the next story, report lists Louisville's biggest polluters for 2022. Jefferson County Industries released about 2.9 million pounds of toxic chemicals into the air, water, and soil last year, according to new annual data from the Environmental Protection Agency's Toxic Release Inventory. 
The inventory showed a slight decline in pounds released compared to last year's totals, marking gradual progress by companies and regulators in reducing harmful emissions. Still, there are glaring inequities of, who's, of who bears the burdens of pollution in Louisville. The EPA's toxic release inventory tracked the emissions of hundreds of different chemicals and dozens of Jefferson County facilities. The emissions are self-reported by facilities, and not all facilities are mandated to report, making it an imperfect measure to the area's total toxic pollution. However, the TRI remains one of the best publicly available tools for tracking local toxic emissions. And year after year, the inventory shows emissions of lung cancer-causing and neurotoxic chemicals disproportionately burdening low-income communities and communities of colors in Louisville's south and west ends. And despite recent progress, the inventory also shows how a handful of companies are responsible for a majority of Louisville's toxic emissions into local air, water, and soil. We have a long way to go, said Charlie Zhang, a University of Louisville professor whose research involves geographic analysis of Louisville's toxic emissions. Overall, Louisville saw improvement in the amounts of toxic chemicals entering the local air, water, and soil last year, and as a general trend over the last decade. And that's come as a result of increased regulation advances in emission control technology and other market forces, said Rachel Hamilton, director of the Louisville Metro Air Pollution Control District. Pressure for some of those changes has been tirelessly applied over the decades by local community organizers, including members of Rubbertown Emergency Action, R-E-A-C-T, and the West Jefferson County Community Task Force. A significant portion of the overall decline in emissions over the past decade comes from reductions at LGE's Mill Creek coal-fired plant, coal-fired power plant, and from the retirement of coal-fired generation at the Cane Run plant. At Mill Creek, since 2012, the utility reports spending nearly 1.5 billion dollars to comply with various pollution regulations. A state public service commission order issue earlier this month will likely mean more emission reductions soon at the site, with LGNEs approved to retire two aging coal-fired plants. Other facilities have made improvements too. Chemours, a rubbertown producer of refrigerants, has brought down emissions of HCFC22, a potent greenhouse gas. And it will continue to reduce emissions of HCFC-22 and its byproduct, HFC-23, another powerful greenhouse gas, according to a spokesman for the company. Hamilton, with APCD, said these changes were driven by the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, which directs the EPA's regulation and phasing down of the HFC group of chemicals. But when the historical emissions have been so exceedingly high, even significant reductions in toxic air emissions on paper can be insufficient, said Eboni Cochran, co-director of REACT and longtime environmental justice advocate in Louisville's fence-line communities. She looks at emissions of chemicals like Tulene as an example. It's a teratoxin, Cochran said. It affects the fetus, so I'm always interested to see who's releasing it.
American synthetic rubber company, Louisville's biggest emitter of Tulane, has significantly decreased its releases compared to a decade ago. Still, in 2022 alone, the Rubbertown facility reported releasing nearly 220,000 pounds of the chemical into the air. The Courier-Journal asked tire maker Michelin, the facility's parent company, if it has any specific plans in place to continue reducing emissions of harmful chemicals like Tulane in Louisville. Michelin is committed to safe and sustainable operations, spokesperson Megan Bagwell said in an email. We continuously invest and optimize our operating practices to improve Rubbertown air quality. Despite reduction, LG&E's Mill Creek plant reported more air emissions to the TRI than any other facility in the county. Though that could change as Mill Creek's energy mix shifts further from coal. Sulfuric acid from Mill Creek's HCFC-22 from Shimores, ammonia from Catalyst Producers' Clariant Crittenden Drive facility, and Tulane from the American Synthetic Rubber Company were among the top air emissions last year by pounds. Other emissions like heavy metals emitted from Clariant's facility on 12th Street came in smaller quantities carried a greater risk to residents, as weighed by the EPA's toxic metric. The Air Pollution Control District granted a permit earlier this year, allowing the facility to increase emissions, slightly increasing nearby cancer risk, despite public outcry and hundreds of submitted comments to regulators. We recognize the environmental impact of our operations and remain committed to substantial improvements a company spokesman said in a statement to the Courier-Journal on its toxic releases. Our company is consistently investing in newer, state-of-the-art technologies and equipment to capture emissions and enhance sustainability. APCD said the facility is compliant with current regulations, including those reflected to lifetime cancer risk. Interpreting the whole picture of Louisville area toxic emissions together gets complicated. These emissions are regulated individually, but Cochrane wants to see more consideration of how the combination of different chemical emissions works against residents' health. Some neighborhoods in the West End, so-called sacrifice zones, abutting the corridor of chemical plants known as Rubbertown, have higher estimates rates of heart disease than 97% of communities nationally. For asthma, they're in the 99th percentile. We want people to start getting serious about cumulative impacts and stop acting like these chemicals are acting individually on our body systems, Cochran said. Even one of these chemicals individually could wreak havoc on our body system. Industries in Jefferson County discharge more than 100,000 pounds of TRI-listed chemicals into local waterways last year. Nitrate compounds from Mill Creek Power Plant, as well as toxins like methanol and formaldehyde from Bakelite Synthetics, were among the top pollutants discharged. Those two companies alone made up about 94% of total TRI-reported emissions into local waterways. 
As part of our commitment to sustainability, we will continue to evaluate our processes and our operations for opportunities to further create a more sustainable future, especially as it relates to water consumption and effluent management, said Bakelite spokesperson John Branham in a statement. Nitrates can contribute to algal blooms downstream, harming aquatic life, and the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico measured at 3,000 square miles this year. Exposure to methanol is associated with an array of health effects, including organ damage and formaldehyde is a carcinogen. Black communities' proximity to the toxic emission documented in the TRI is not a coincidence, but rather a product of systemic injustices and policies designed to prevent black residents from building wealth or securing stable housing. Redlining, the practice of denying loans in certain neighborhoods because of socioeconomic characteristics, according to a research product on the subcare jet by on the subcare subject by Joshua Poe, made a residential apartheid of black neighborhoods, including those that still border chemical facilities today. If you overlie the redlining boundaries with the contemporary pollution map, Zhang said, there are still highly correlated vulnerability to toxic pollution in those communities is compounded, Zhang said, by other disadvantages, including inadequate access to health care or healthy foods. Louisville's 2017 Health Equity Report found life expectancies in the West End are nearly a decade shorter than those areas in the East. Air Justice, a project of the Environmental Health Literacy Coalition, surveyed nearly 2,000 Louisville residents, mostly in the West End, and found that 98% were concerned about air pollution in some capacity. But issues of health and safety came first, and the jargon around air quality posed a potential barrier to community involvement. Our assessment found that air pollution control district notices are written at a Ph.D. or master's reading level, even though the average American adult understands science at a middle school reading level according to the coalition's summary of findings. New federal funding could help Louisville residents better understand local air toxics. In November, the APCD announced $1 million in EPA funding would go toward extensive air monitoring in the West End and around Rubbertown, involving local partners like the West Jefferson County Community Task Force and Park Duval Community Health Centers. In 2005, findings from a similar air toxics monitoring endeavor led to the creation of Louisville's Strategic Toxic Air Reduction Program, which sets a higher regulatory standard for the city's major chemical polluters compared to existing EPA regulations. And finally, inflation eases more than expected in October. After rising and then moving sideways in recent months, inflation changed emphatically and resumed its descent in October. Consumer price increases eased more than expected as falling gasoline and used cars prices offset another rise in rent and a rebound in health insurance costs. Core prices 
An underlying measure of price increases that the Federal Reserve watches more closely stayed elevated but also pulled back, bolstering the case for the Fed to continue to hold rates steady after a flurry of hikes. Consumer prices overall rose 3.2% from a year earlier, down from 3.7% in September, according to the Labor Department's Consumer Price Index released early Tuesday. And that pulled inflation closer to the more than two-year low it reached in June and July before a surge in gasoline prices. On a monthly basis, prices were unchanged following a four-tenths of 1% rise the previous month. The developments at least raise the prospect of some longer-lasting relief for Americans who have struggled to keep pace with rapidly rising prices triggered by pandemic-related supply chain troubles and consumer demand surges for more than two years. And this concludes readings for the first section of the Courier-Journal for today, Wednesday, November 15th. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Rod Brotherton. And now we will continue reading the news from today's edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal for Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Your reader is now Bill Sally. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for those who are blind or for those who have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. We'll begin by reading today's obituaries and death notices, We read only the name, age, and location, if given. Shirley May Adams, 67, Shepherdsville. Sue Carol Arnold, 75, Louisville. Charles B. Atchison, 93, Shelbyville. Janice M. Bays, 83, Corydon, Indiana. Mary Bird, 99, Louisville. Jerry Brackett, 73, Liberty. Allison Lee Brock, 23, Lawrenceburg. Frida Brown, 81, Linden. George Arthur Brown, 60, Louisville. Albert Bullitt, Jr., 73, New Albany, Indiana. Shirley Carter, 89, Louisville. Alma Cash, 95, Glasgow. Gerald Kalk, 88, Campbellsville, Madeline Dalton, 99, Litchfield, James G. Dillon, 73, Louisville, Daniel Dunn, 80, New Albany, Rocky Evans, 61, Tompkinsville, John Fisher, 53, Clarkson, Joseph Glenn Gagel, Jr., 69, Lanesville, Indiana, Carol F. Garrett, 90, Louisville. John Leo Graming, 82, Louisville. Maggie Hale, 95, Hardensburg. Sean Thomas Harlow, 43, Louisville. Mary Angela Hayden, 80, Louisville. John Allen Hayes, 83, Brandenburg. Shannon Hazley, 54, Clarksville, Indiana. Wendell Ray Doggy Hazlitt, 59, Danville. Dolores Bernice Hunt, 82, Louisville. 
Brian Christopher Johnson, 40, Cadiz. Janet Faye Jones, 68, Owensboro. Shane Kelly, 48, Carrollton. Shirley Kearns, 73, Jamestown. Michael King, 69, Elizabethtown. Cynthia Kipp, 78, Louisville. Irvin Mack McDowell Kircher, 77, Jeffersonville, Indiana. Ryan Kohler, 38, New Albany, Indiana. Raymond Ricky Frederick Least III, 61, Louisville. James Byron Lewis, 72, Simpsonville. Charles Long, 82, Munfordville. Robert Butch Leon Martin, 71, Glasgow. Harry James McAllister, 66, Austin. Colbert E. H. Cole Miller, Jr., 84, Danville. Coleman Lines Moffat Sr., 82, Shelbyville. James Jimmy Edward Moran, 63, Louisville. James Allen Morris, 83, Owensboro. Wes Mullins Sr., 46, Jackson, South Carolina. Sharon Myers, 85, New Boston. Sandra Nip, 74, Louisville. Martin Anthony Nofio, 68, Richmond. Peggy Kessler Payne, 73, Louisville. Sherry Ann Perkins, 56, Louisville. Jane Pfeiffer, 89, Vine Grove. Norman Eugene Phillips, 74, Louisville. Ronnie J. Poole, 44, Louisville. Mrs. Betty Jean Red, 72, Louisville. Mary Jane Richardson, 89, North Vernon. Barbara Ritchie, 78, Shelbyville. Ernest Leon Robinson, 80, Pleasureville. Harold S. Robison, 81, Newcastle. Robert L. Bob Rogers, 99, Louisville. Terrence Terry Schuster, 76, Clarksville, Indiana. Scott Schweitzer, 58, Shelbyville. James H. Sheffield, Jr., 68, Louisville. Dennis Denny Ray Scheimer, 71, Shelbyville. Donnie Shively, 72, Hazard. Rosalie Margie Althouse Smith, 81, Louisville. Joan P. Stingle, 90, Salem. Sidney Swiney, 80, Peewee Valley. Blondell Terry, 95, Glasgow. John Towns, 59, Louisville. James Tripton, 80, Louisville. Gerald Jerry Wesley Vogel, 52, Louisville. Donald E. Wagner, 93, no location given. Olivia Grace Waldridge, 
23, Lawrenceburg. Leonard Walker, 90, Salem. Jeanette White, 44, Louisville. Jean Carolyn Sims Horby, 82, Fairdale. Callie Zimmerman, 88, Corydon, Indiana. If you'd like any more information about any of those listed in today's obituaries and death notices, there is a location you can visit. It is courier-journal.com slash obituaries. Again, that site is courier-journal.com slash obituaries. The next article from today's edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal appears on the Metro page, and it's entitled, I Am a Connector. Longtime activist sworn in as Metro Council Member. This article is written by Eleanor McCrary of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Longtime activist Shamika Parrish Wright has a brand new title, Louisville Metro Councilwoman. The director of Vocal-KY was sworn in as District 3's representative at City Hall on Monday, reciting her oath to, quote, faithfully execute to the best of my ability the office of councilperson according to law and ordinance. And, of course, verifying that she has never been in a duel, a long-standing Kentucky requirement. This means her work can officially begin. Quote, it's going to be different being on this side, she said, gesturing to the area where legislators and other officials sit during council meetings. I've been on this side so many times for the last 20 years, and now to be on this side, it just, I'm really taking it in. Parrish Wright is one of three people who won a council seat in the November 7 special elections, and the only person of the three who wasn't already seated on the council. Councilman Ben Reno-Weber, who was appointed to the District 8 earlier this year, was sworn in alongside her. Councilman Philip Baker, who has been serving in District 6, will be sworn in Monday evening. Mayor Craig Greenberg and former State Representative Attica Scott were in the audience watching the ceremony. I wanted to support the new councilwoman, Greenberg said, adding that he looks forward to working with her and that it was a, quote, good day here today. Parrish Wright has critiqued Greenberg, who she ran against in the 2022 mayoral primary, but I has also pledged to work alongside him in her new role. When she was elected November 7th, Greenberg sent her a message congratulating her, she said. At Vocal KY, a grassroots organization, she worked to help low-income people impacted by HIV and AIDS, drugs, homelessness, and mass incarceration. As a councilwoman, she hopes to make the metro government more accessible and create a sense of unity with her fellow legislators, she told the Courier-Journal on election night. Quote, I'm a connector, she said. I want to lift people up and do what's right. Parrish Wright is also passionate about environmental justice, reforming Louisville Metro Police, and finding ways to make electricity more affordable, she said at a voter forum. A public swearing-in in ceremony for all three council members will be held November 30th at the regularly scheduled council meeting. The next article in today's Career Journal also appears on the Metro page. It's entitled, Doc Crows in Fight to Save Liquor Licenses After Probe. 
State agency says Barr had many infractions. This is written by Rachel Smith of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Popped bottles and bourbon labeling are at the heart of state regulators' probe into whether Doc Crow's Southern Smokehouse and Raw Bar violated Kentucky's Vintage Spirits laws. In its case report, the Kentucky Alcoholic Beverage Control Department says the Louisville Bar had a slew of infractions, including being unable to provide receipts for some purchased distilled spirits, not identifying ABCs of all of its, quote, vintage purchases, tampering with evidence, and mislabeling multiple distilled spirits as, quote, vintage, when they were rather, quote, just hard to find. Doc Crows did not respond to the Courier-Journal's request for comment, but the bar at 127 West Main Street is now embroiled in a struggle to retain its alcoholic beverage licenses with the Kentucky ABC. Is it vintage Doc's bourbon or not? Kentucky ABC investigates Louisville Bar. In November 2022, an ABC investigator visited Doc Crow's where they say the bar had some bottles indicating they were vintage distilled spirits, such as sporting the sticker, quote, vintage Doc's bourbon. To be considered, quote, vintage, a distilled spirit must be in its original manufacturer's unopened container, not owned by a distillery, and not otherwise available for purchase from a licensed wholesaler within Kentucky. State officials regulate the purchase and sale of vintage distilled spirits in the Commonwealth with a list of requirements and standards needed to be met by each licensed retailer. For example, one rule dictates that as soon as a licensed retailer makes a purchase, each bottle or container must have a, quote, conspicuous sticker not readily removable, identifying it as a, quote, vintage distilled spirit. According to the ABC case file, the investigator had told Justin Bensel, Doc Crow's director of operations, some of the bar's bottles were not vintage because they were still being produced by the distillery and sold by wholesalers. Bensel was told to place these non-vintage bottles in a secure area with the caveat that, quote, nothing was to be opened or tampered with or else there would be an additional infraction. When the investigator returned a few days later, they said they noticed at least two of the bottles, Van Winkle, 12-year-old, Lot B, and Thomas H. Handy, had been opened and were missing liquor, according to the report. Benzel said the bottles had been secured in his office and he would look into how the theft occurred. Those bottles were confiscated, along with an Eagle Rare bottle because the investigator said, quote, Eagle Rare was still made and sold. During the investigation, the ABC investigator said some receipts and transactions Details of purchase were not turned over to state regulators, which is required. Next, what happens now? The Kentucky ABC has moved to revoke or suspend five alcoholic beverage licenses by Doc Crows, but it seems the bar's owner, Bertuka Hospitality Group, LLC, is prepared to fight. A pre-hearing conference was held on October 18th, with another one scheduled for December 20th. According to the conference file, Kentucky ABC scheduled a second pre-hearing, quote, in order to allow time for possible settlement without requiring a hearing date. The next article from today's Courier-Journal is the final one on the Metro page. It's entitled, Louisville Man Charged in Connection with the Death of Nightclub Employee. 
This article is lit, written by Leo Bertrusi of the Louisville Courier-Journal. A Louisville man has been arrested in connection to the slaying of a Poplar Level Road nightclub employee in August. Rafael Antonio Icasio-Son, 30, was arrested Friday at 3.43 p.m. in relation to the shooting death of 45-year-old Terrence Mason at the Pussycat Lounge on August 25th. He was arraigned Saturday and is currently being held at Louisville Metro Corrections on a $500,000 cash bond. According to court documents, surveillance videos show Icasion Son driving by the business and firing a shot into the air as Mason stood outside that evening. After Mason entered the building to retrieve his own firearm, Icasio Son allegedly returned and fired at Mason, striking him in the back. Footage also shows Icasio Son returning to the establishment the next day to retrieve his wallet. Mason later died at Saints Mary and Elizabeth Hospital while receiving treatment for, quote, complications from his gunshot wound, court records show. A preliminary hearing for Ocasio Son is scheduled for November 20th. The next article from today's Courier Journal is entitled Louisville Man Arrested After 13 Mile Chase. This is written by Leo Bertusi of the Louisville Courier Journal. A Louisville man was arrested after he allegedly led police on a 13-mile chase that ended after he rammed two police cruisers as he tried to escape Sunday afternoon. According to a report from the Louisville Metro Police, police attempted to stop 19-year-old Jaden Ross at around 3.30 p.m. on South 2nd Street for driving with an expired vehicle registration tag. Ross allegedly ignored police lights and sirens prompting an officer to call an LMPD helicopter to follow Ross's car. Ross stopped at a Speedway gas station on Westport Road where he encountered police again. According to the LMPD report, Ross, quote, rammed through two police cruisers before officers caught him attempting to flee the scene on foot. Ross was arrested a short time later. Police said a probable cause search of Ross's car was conducted after officers allegedly found marijuana and a handgun in the vehicle. Ross was arrested on nine charges, including wanton endangerment of a police officer, criminal mischief, trafficking in marijuana, fleeing or evading a police officer, and driving without a valid license. He was arraigned at 9 a.m. Monday and was held in Louisville Metro Corrections on a $35,000 cash bond. A preliminary hearing is set for November 21st. The next article is entitled, Own a Gun? Lock it in a safe. Your glove box is not a holster. This is a Your Turn piece on the Community Forum page, and it's written by Todd Brim, a guest columnist. He has a master's degree and a master's of divinity and is a retired LMPD supervisor and a former military intelligence officer. He received an award in 2011 from Louisville Metro Council for developing a comprehensive crime mapping program for LMPD's 7th Division. And here is his opinion piece. During the Cold War, school children were introduced to the potential of atomic warfare as the primary threat to personal safety. 
Schools would hold drills and students would get under a desk or line the hallways with their heads tucked down and their hands clasped to mitigate falling debris. Fast forward and now children are dying from active shooters and drive-by shootings at bus stops. Your books are marked with the letters RIP on the pictures of murdered students that school year and the mental wellness of many students who live in mortal fear is on par with combat veterans. Next, Americans are buying more and more guns. America is fresh off another mass murder, and politicians are calling for more gun laws as a response. It is logical to review some aspects of gun laws, but before new laws are considered, government at all levels and civic leaders must develop operational strategies that include the communities that they serve. Government organizations are not the answer to the problem of so much gun violence, but they can certainly facilitate the mitigation of gun violence in their own communities. The difficulty for politicians is that firearm ownership is a very sensitive topic in their circles because the topic is specifically talked about within the context of new legislation. Data has indicated that Americans are buying more and more firearms as indicated by the FBI instant background checks, which rose by more than 80% from 2019 to 2020, with well over 2 million background checks. Unfortunately, the secondary effects of massive gun sales is the alarming number of guns that are stolen and used in violent crime. Moreover, the majority of gun-related homicides and assaults involve the use of a stolen firearm. The stolen, often untraceable, firearms that end up being used in violent crimes are not stolen by breaking into a residence or cracking a gun safe. They are overwhelmingly stolen from cars in driveways and parking lots, like 70% overwhelming. Next, stolen guns are used in crimes. A large number of firearms used to kill teenagers to shoot at law enforcement officers responding to calls for service, and to rob our neighborhood markets, have their origin in a vehicle's glove box as a legal firearm purchased to protect people from the very violence it is creating. The firearms purchased by citizens who could pass an FBI background check are the primary source for criminals to obtain handguns because they are left in cars. Speaking from experience as a former LMPD supervisor, more than 80% of thefts from automobiles are the result of cars being left unlocked. The fact that most people were not aware of this data before reading this column is a telltale sign that communities are not equipped or prepared to engage the epidemic of stolen firearms from vehicles. Metro government, including LMPD, must develop a strategy with a defined end state that is more than a random community engagement event or a news story. There must be a comprehensive plan that includes routine communications with the public. I did this weekly to more than 100,000 people, and it worked very well. Louisville Metro must bring the community alongside in efforts to mitigate Louisville's epidemic of firearms-related violence that is fueled by honest people making the horrible mistake of leading loaded, high-caliber firearms in a glove box that is easily stolen. Again, this is an opinion piece from Todd Brim, who has an MA and a Master's of Divinity and is a retired LMPD supervisor and a former military intelligence officer. 
Again, he received an award in 2011 from Louisville Metro Council for developing a comprehensive crime mapping program for LMPD's 7th Division. The next item in today's paper is also a Your Turn column on the Community Forum page, and it's entitled, Buy Your Morning Joe from a Local Union Coffee Shop. This is written by Ariana Levinson, a guest columnist. She is a professor of law at the University of Louisville's Brandeis School of Law. Her scholarship and teaching focus is on labor and employment law. And here is her Community Forum guest column. As I sat in the historic Louisville courtroom on June 5th, it was empty, except for those involved in a case against Starbucks Incorporated for federal labor law violations at the Clarksville, Indiana location. One reporter and me, a labor law professor, observed. As is typically true, the government attorneys prosecuting Starbucks for violations were outnumbered and outresourced. Nevertheless, on August 22, 2023, the presiding administrative law judge issued an opinion finding that Starbucks threatened employees that if they unionized, they would not be able to obtain help from other stores and refused to promote a worker because of her support for unionization. Next, why should Kentucky care about Starbucks' union hearing? These are our friends and neighbors workers at five Louisville-area Starbucks, including the Factory Lane and Baxter Station stores, and at both Elizabethtown Starbucks, have unionized. Income inequality in Kentucky, as across the nation, is high. The decline in unions correlates with rising income inequality. Miners have been unlawfully working in McDonald's, warehouses, and meat processing plants in Kentucky. Unions enforce safety provisions. Around 62% of Kentucky's GDP comes from the service industry. Around 99% of all Kentucky businesses are small businesses, which employ around 43.6% of Kentucky workers. No out-of-state funded aluminum mill is coming to create jobs for us. Next, small businesses want to pay their workers well and care about the community. Many small businesses, whether union or not, want to pay their workers well and create safe working conditions. Small businesses recirculate earnings in our community rather than sending it to an out-of-state business owner. But small businesses can't compete in a race to the bottom where a large national company prevents unionization and keeps wages and working conditions low. Federal law governs unionization and congressional gridlock prevents updating the primary labor law, last significantly updated in 1947. Workers must find ways to organize and win a contract within this ossified legal framework. Without a contract, companies remain free to undermine the workers' union, pay low wages, and provide minimal safety. Contract wins by Teamsters represented workers at UPS and UAW represented workers at Ford will begin to address income inequality and raise working standards. Yet to raise working standards for those who have historically lacked union representation, workers in industries like coffee shops must win contracts. Our friends and neighbors are part of nationwide movements to organize at Starbucks. 
Since December 2021, more than 9,000 Starbucks workers have organized at over 300 stores. Their goal is to procure a contract granting them, among other things, living wages and benefits and safe workplaces. Starbucks has yet to bargain a single contract, and administrative law judges have found that Starbucks has committed over 280 federal labor law violations, including 36 unlawful discharges. The federal government has issued 65 more official complaints, alleging the company has committed over 1,200 additional violations of federal labor law. Next, the Starbucks workers need the support of all workers and community members. What can you do? On June 5, 2023, I sat in Louisville's historic courtroom knowing Justice Louis Brandeis was buried just outside the portico to the law school entry. It's the same courtroom where Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to an overflowing crowd in 1967, including people hanging out the windows. We do not have to be paragons for workers' rights, like Brandeis and MLK Jr., to make a difference. As consumers, we can show Starbucks that we support them and their workers as a unionized company by joining others and taking action on Red Cup Day, one of the largest sales day of the year. On November 16th, purchase a cup of coffee from a locally owned union company, Heine Brothers or Sonnigers, or from our only worker-owned cooperative, Old Louisville Coffee Co-op. If Starbucks is your only option, forego use of your app and put your name in as Union Yes. One reusable coffee cup is a small sacrifice for the larger good. Again, this was an opinion piece from Ariana Levinson, who's a professor of law at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. Her scholarship and teaching focus is on labor and employment law. This concludes the reading of the news from today's edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal for Wednesday, November 15, 2023. Your reader today has been Bill Sally as... Rod Brotherton read the first part of today's news as well. We thank you for listening, and now we ask you to please stay tuned for continued programming right here on Radio I.